coming up on Economics Explored. It's a big problem in the United States. We already had a problem with suicides and opiate overdoses prior to COVID, but since the lockdowns, it escalated and there was a big increase in drug overdoses and suicides by other means. And that's one of the harmful effects of these lockdowns. When you deprive people of their ability to earn a livelihood, you know, that's possibly the number one cause of severe depression. Uh, Loss of a loved one is the only other thing that comes close. Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist based in Brisbane, Australia, and I'm a former Australian Treasury official. This is episode 106 on COVID lockdowns and mandatory vaccinations. This episode was recorded in September 2021. We're still in the pandemic and there are still lockdowns in some cities, including in Australia's two largest cities, Sydney and Melbourne. My guest this episode, via Zoom from Lubbock, Texas, is Gilbert Burdine, MD. Dr. Burdine is Associate Professor of Internal Medicine at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center and a faculty affiliate of the university's Free Market Institute. He earned his BS degrees in chemistry and life sciences from MIT and his MD degree from Harvard University's School of Medicine. Dr. Burdine's current teaching activities include lecturer for the respiratory blocks in the first year major organ systems course and the second year systems disorders one course. His clinical duties include staff attending physician for the inpatient pulmonary consult service inpatient internal medicine floor service and the outpatient pulmonary fellow clinic. Dr. Burdine also sees patients in the pulmonary clinic for Texas Tech physicians. He treats COVID patients on a regular basis. Dr. Burdine's research interests include the application of Austrian economics to healthcare delivery and consumption. He has published articles on these topics in peer-reviewed journals and is a contributor to the Mises Daily Wire and the American Institute of Economic Research. His articles cover COVID-related issues as well as regulations on e-cigarettes or vaping, which we cover toward the end of this episode. As always, the views of guests on this program are their views and should not necessarily be attributed to me. Broadly speaking, I am sympathetic with many of Dr. Burdine's views. I'm concerned about the high costs of lockdowns and I think I'm opposed to the government mandating COVID vaccinations, although I myself will get vaccinated and I don't mind governments applying incentives to encourage vaccinations. You may recall my discussion with Isaac Katz in a recent episode on incentivising vaccinations. Of course, please consult your own physician for any medical advice. Please check out the show notes for links to materials mentioned in this episode and for any clarifications. For instance, I've added a note on COVID mortality statistics to clarify a point that Dr. Burdine makes in our conversation. When you hear Dr. Burdine refer to a COVID mortality rate in the order of 1 in 10,000 or lower, he's thinking of younger age groups. He acknowledges COVID has been a tragedy. The mortality rates of the elderly have been high and I've linked to relevant statistics in the show notes. One point I should note, 
however, is that there is a controversy over just how we count COVID deaths. And this is something that Dr. Verdine has done some research on. There is this controversy about whether are we actually counting people who died because of COVID or are we counting people who died with COVID? I myself don't have the expertise to adjudicate on that. So I'll just acknowledge that is a controversy. If you have any questions, comments or suggestions relating to this episode or to previous episodes, then please send them to contact at economicsexplored.com. I'd love to hear from you. Before we get to this week's episode, I'd like to thank regular Economics Explored guest Darren Brady Nelson for connecting me with Dr. Burdine. And also, I'd like to thank my audio engineer, Josh Crotz. Righto, now for my conversation with Dr. Burdine. I hope you enjoy it. Dr. Gilbert Burdine, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure, Gilbert. I'm keen to speak with you today about issues to do with the pandemic in particular. Now, we're recording this on, it's Friday, 10th of September in the United States. You're joining me from Texas and it's uh, Saturday, September 11 in Australia. Now, it's just been revealed that President Joe Biden has announced a vaccine mandate in the United States. So I'll be interested in your your thoughts on that. But first, I'm interested, you're, as well as being a, a practicing physician, you are, well, you're an academic too. You're an associate professor of internal medicine at Texas Tech University. And you're also a faculty affiliate with the Free Market Institute. How is it that a doctor becomes associated with a Free Market Institute? Could you just tell us a bit about your story, please? I'm an unusual species. Most people in the medical profession are very authoritarian. Right. As a group, we're very authoritarian. So I'm an oddball and I'm very much in favor of patient autonomy, uh, informed consent. And, and I, I teach students and residents and I try to teach them that we don't save lives contrary to what they may think. We sell advice. People come to us with questions about their health and we provide them with expert information on how to solve their problems. But ultimately, the decisions to be made are to be made by the patient. Now, they need to have the information necessary um, to make these decisions wisely. And that's what our job is, is we have a great deal of experience and knowledge and we have to break complicated problems into a form that the lay public can understand so that they can make the best decision for themselves. Yeah, so that makes sense. And, and so this Free Market Institute, this is associated with, uh, with the university there, is it? Uh, Correct. Yeah, Correct. okay, got you. Okay, great. Uh, well, let's get into the issues around the pandemic. So I'm in Brisbane, Australia, and generally we've had very little COVID here in Brisbane and in Queensland, the state I'm in. But the way we've done that is whenever there's been a outbreak of some kind, they've just imposed this snap lockdown. And we've had several of these and it looks like we might be going into another one today because now the Delta variant is spreading and it's it looks like it's 
well, it's spreading out of control in New South Wales and Victoria. They've imposed lockdowns. Perhaps it's slowed down the, the growth to an extent, but they haven't been able to get rid of it as they have in the past. And I think we'll be in a similar situation in Queensland. And you know, many of us here, well, increasingly we're starting to question the wisdom of these lockdowns. I mean, we obviously can't go do, on doing this forever. Could I ask your perspective? What do you see with lockdowns and have they been effective? What are your thoughts on lockdowns, Gilbert? They've been a disaster. Now, Australia is a special case and we'll come to that last, but the lockdowns throughout the world have been a disaster. Uh, So originally when this problem emerged in January of uh, 2020, we were told that we had to do these lockdowns to prevent the fall of civilization, that COVID was going to wipe out human life. And, and that was a gross exaggeration of what was what was going to happen. Um, the mortality rate pretty much everywhere has been somewhere between uh, one in 10,000 and one in 100,000 people uh, so far. That's not an existential crisis. That's not a great deal difference from the typical annual mortality. So this is just something fairly ordinary. Now, it's been a tragedy, and I don't want to pretend otherwise, but it was never an existential crisis where we were going to see the extinction of humanity if we didn't do something drastic. So that part was greatly exaggerated. Now, the lockdowns have done what was very predictable. It slowed the initial spread except in places like New York, where the governor did very foolish things in terms of introducing COVID into nursing homes. But in in Texas, for example, the lockdowns here clearly slowed the spread of the virus, but it didn't save lives. It just delayed the deaths that were going to happen. So you saw a slow increase in cases and deaths initially, but it basically spread the problem out over a longer period of time. And if we had not locked down, for example, like Sweden, we would have had a very similar death rate, maybe even lower in Texas, over a much shorter period of time, and everybody would have been better off. So Sweden was criticized pretty much by all of the establishment for their liberal policy of letting people decide how to deal with the epidemic. No mandates for masking, no mandates for social distancing. They did not close schools. They did not close businesses. And initially, it looked like Sweden was a disaster because they had a very uh, rapid increase in cases and deaths. But it turned out to be very ordinary in terms of what happens in a typical year in Sweden. And their pandemic was over in just a couple of months. I'll come back to Sweden at the end. In Texas, however, we dragged it out for many, many months. And eventually the death rate, uh, the mortality rate from COVID in Texas passed that of Sweden. And the reason is, is quite simple. You've got two groups of people that have much different outcomes with COVID. You've got young people and elderly people. Now the elderly people can't be locked down because by and large, Uh, they're not able to take care of themselves. So they have to interact with other people. So you can't isolate them. So it's the young people that are being isolated, locked down. 
And that's actually contrary to minimizing mortality. The ideal solution when you have this disparate outcome is to have the low risk group become immune through acquiring the illness and getting over it very quickly. And you have a rapid rise in cases. It uh, rolls over very quickly and then decays to zero. The decay to zero is the mark of herd immunity. And when herd immunity is achieved, you're not going to have any more cases. So you have a much shorter period of time where the elderly people are at risk. Now, you can follow these safety measures, masking and whatnot in nursing homes. You can follow special practices in nursing homes. But over a period of time, people develop alert fatigue. And if you try to do these things over long periods of time, people stop They get careless, they stop following uh, the policy, and you just end up with more mistakes. So by permitting the virus to be in the community at large for a long period of time, many months, instead of a few weeks, you actually increase the number of deaths. Right. Okay. Yep. Yeah, there's some good points there, Gilbert. I want to ask you about this death rate. So that death rate you mentioned, that that seemed much lower than what you've experienced in the United States Australia has had a much lower death rate than the United States. And there are reasons for this. You know, I don't know the demographics in Australia, whether they're similar to the United States. I don't know the prevalence of obesity in Australia. Mm. There are risk factors for COVID. And if your population has lower uh, numbers of people with risk factors, they're going to do better. It is quite possible that Australia has done extremely well with taking care of their elderly people, much better than the United States or other parts of the world. And they're to be commended for this. And that could very well be a big part of their success. But people ask me about Australia, you know, way back, uh, I mean, a year ago when I was talking about how we didn't want to lock down. People said, well, what about Australia? How do you explain Australia? And I said, Well, I think Australia is going to have a very nasty surprise. Remember, we're having this outbreak in our winter, but it's their summer. And so this is their low season. But wait until it's our summer and their winter. And then let's see what happens, because you do not eliminate the virus. This is not like smallpox where you can eradicate it. It hangs around. There are reservoirs. It even exists on packaging. And basically, once the conditions are ripe for transmission of the virus, you'll get an outbreak. Uh, The virus will spread. And the only way that you can suppress this is to develop herd immunity. Herd immunity can be acquired through natural means by recovering from the infection, and it can also be acquired by vaccination. The vaccines are another topic. But the young people who we rely on to develop herd immunity have a very low mortality rate. For example, I I really don't understand why there's this debate about school children. A school child is more likely to die from drowning or a lightning strike than from COVID. Mm. So if you just let the kids go to school, the problem in the kids would be over in a week. Right, yes. I mean, what the public health officials, well, at least the ones in Australia here, what they say is that the school children could be super spreaders and then they could take it home and then it could end up uh, infecting. Now, this has never happened anywhere. So again, Sweden, I wanted to come back to Sweden. Okay. Sweden did not close their schools. 
they have over 1 million school children and there is not a single death in Sweden in a school child. So clearly, whatever the risks to school children, they are extremely low on the order of one in a million or one in 10 million. And it is just ludicrous to prevent children from going to school and acquiring the skills they need to become adults because of this kind of risk. They're way more likely to die in an automobile accident. Uh, and like I said, they're more likely to die from a lightning strike. And you're, you're not going to keep kids in a shelter because of, of those kinds of risks. So I think the school issue is just so silly. I, I'm amazed that we're even having a debate about it. Now, I think if, if you're talking about people who are over the age of 40, you've got a little bit different situation. Clearly, the situation is different for the people over the age of 80. And so, you know, you can have a rational discussion about what's appropriate policy with these higher risk groups. But, but the school children, I, I just don't understand why there's even a debate about it. When Texas opened its schools, it was predicted that there was going to be a huge outbreak and all sorts of deaths. Right. And instead, just as I said, because the children acquired herd immunity or immunity very quickly, you actually reduce the transmission to the elderly people who were at risk. Okay. I mean, think about it. If the kids aren't in school, where are they? They're probably at home with grandma. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point about the uh, getting that herd immunity among the children. I think, yeah, that that's a really good point. I, that hadn't occurred to me. Good. Well, can I ask about the impact on the hospital system? So one of the fears among public health officials, and I think it's a, a grave, it's a big fear among our public health officials here in Australia because we have state-run hospital systems. We're very reliant upon them. What about this fear that if we get let this get out of control, so to speak, or or lot, we end up with lots of COVID cases, we're going to end up filling our hospitals, they'll be overrun, that we'll run short of intensive care beds, and it will just be a crisis. It'll be like Italy in the early days or, or India a few months ago. Do you have any thoughts on that? Have you seen anything like that in the US? Uh, no. I, I mean, in New York, in, in New York City, where there was a huge problem, again, because of Governor Cuomo's directive that cause the sick people to get into the nursing homes. We have been told this over and over, we're going to overwhelm the healthcare system, but it hasn't occurred. Even in New York, they set up these emergency facilities. They sent a hospital ship to New York, you know, New York Harbor, and it just sat there unused. They put up temporary facilities to house the overflow, and they went unused. There wasn't a single occupant, and they eventually dismantled them. You know, here in Lubbock, we've had issues. The hospital has been full, uh, at least at the current time. And we had some problems during the winter outbreak. But you never had a situation where people who had to get cared for didn't get cared. In a situation like this, you know, this is what triage means. This mm. is the, where the word triage comes in. You have to set your priorities and you have to be creative in taking care of lesser problems in an outpatient setting. One of the criticisms, I, I don't want to really get into this particular issue, but one of the criticisms has been that the CDC and FDA have basically suppressed outpatient therapies that at least have some promise of reducing the need for hospitalization. Now, I think both sides on this issue are exaggerating their case. I think the 
truth is somewhere in the middle that these remedies are better than nothing, but they aren't miracles like some people claim they are. The biggest problem with COVID in showing efficacy of anything, whether it's a vaccine or a remedy, is if you don't do anything, 99% of the people who get it survive. I mean, the mortality from COVID is extremely low. So if you don't do anything, the outcome is good. So when you have a, a mortality that is that low, it is very difficult to show efficacy. So it's hard to, to demonstrate this convincingly. It's been demonstrated very convincingly that steroids help. Uh, if steroids are used early on in illness, then you, you reduce the, uh, the overall uh, severity of the problem, you shorten stay and reduce mortality. That's been shown. The information on a lot of other remedies is not as good because, like mm. I said, it's hard to show when people do so well without doing anything. Mm, yes. Yes. Do we know roughly why? I mean, some people seem to, like, it, it just takes over and they end up with the severe respiratory condition. Do we do we have an idea of why that is? Why is it, for most people, it is so mild and in some it just, is, it just overwhelms them? Well, we don't really understand why most people do well. For example, we're not really sure why obesity is such a risk factor. Mm. Old age is a lot easier to understand because as you age, yes. your immune defense gets worse. So I hope you don't mind. I, I just want to give a brief summary of how we combat these viruses. Please do. Because we talk about immune system and people think that's a single, a single entity, but it's not. Our immune system is very complicated. So our first line of defense is what's called T-cell immunity. And if the T-cell immunity uh, is successful, the person doesn't even know they had an infection. They have zero symptoms because it's like an invading army trying to storm the castle and the T-cells go out before they even get to the city walls and they kill the invading army before it even touches the wall. Okay. Yeah. So your T-cells are your first line of defense. And then you have what's called IgA immunity. And IgA is a type of antibody produced by the cells lining the respiratory epithelium, the airways of the throat and nose and the lung. So this is a very important line of defense for respiratory viruses. If the IgA immune system defeats the virus, you get a runny nose or maybe a sore throat for two days, and that's the extent of your illness. Now, if the invaders breach the walls and they get into the bloodstream and they spread to your organs, well, now you have a fight on your hands and you have uh, you have fighting in the streets. So now you start to see tissue damage. Ah. The first tissue to be involved is the lung because it is a respiratory virus. So you get acute lung injury, which causes something called adult respiratory distress syndrome. And COVID, severe COVID cases are really no different from ARDS of other causes, be it bacterial pneumonia or aspiration or even triggered by blood transfusions. It doesn't really matter what the cause is. It's a very severe illness uh, due to capillary leak. And it's very difficult. It had very high mortality. It's had a high, very high mortality for decades. So COVID is not unusual in this. Anything that causes ARDS, if you get to the ARDS stage, you're in trouble. Mm. 
There is no question about that. Unfortunately, that only occurs in a small number of people. Why the obesity thing? I, I don't. We. I don't think we understand that. Mm. No, that's a look. That was a handy explanation, Gilbert. Uh, yeah, I really uh, appreciated that. I think I learned something from that. I wish a doctor had told me that. You know, I've had respiratory issues in the past. Or yeah, that that was a really good explanation. So thank thanks so much. I want to get back to uh, some of your work. So I think we may have covered this one. There's a paper you wrote for the or an article for the AIER lockdowns of young people lead to more deaths from COVID-19. Is that the point? That may have been the point we covered before, I think, where you're talking, or is there something else? Correct. Yeah, okay. Correct. I uh, discussed New York as an example of how it's very important to decrease transmission amongst the elderly. And Texas is an example of how Lockdowns of young people just defer the problem. It doesn't solve it. Uh, again, if if young people are not allowed to go to restaurants, where are they going to be? They're going to be at home. And in many of these homes are elderly people. So they spend more time in the home because they can't go outside. And so it becomes more difficult to take care of any elderly people residing with their children. So that was that article. I, I did some other things on vaccines. And then the most recent article was about how the vaccination rate has had very little benefit in uh, reducing COVID morbidity and mortality. I basically looked at the vaccination rates in the 50 states and the District of Columbia and plotted that against new COVID cases and new COVID deaths uh, since July 1st, which is basically Delta variant. And there's a weak correlation, but it's very weak. The R squared or the Pearson correlation coefficient is between 0.25 and 0.33, which is very weak correlation. Other factors are more important. From the regression equation, I computed the number to treat to prevent uh, a death. So the number of complete vaccinations to prevent a single death across the United States is 2,500 vaccinations. It's over 3,000 for partial vaccinations. That's a lot of vaccinations to prevent a single death. Is it worth it? Well, I guess it depends on your point of view. I mean, it's certainly a discussable problem, but you have to worry about the morbidity and mortality from people getting the vaccine. And it is not zero, despite what the establishment keep saying is that these vaccines are safe. Well, they're not entirely safe. Now, the incidence of severe reactions is low, but it's not zero. And the problem is the people who are dying is not the same group of people who are dying from COVID. So you're, you are asking young people who have very little risk from COVID to assume the risk of these elderly people. And I'm not sure that's uh, that's fair. Mm. Yeah, we've had a public discussion about this in Australia. So our chief health officer here in Queensland who, well, she came out a couple of months ago because we've had a debate about Pfizer versus AstraZeneca and the chief health officer said, oh, well, young people should wait for Pfizer. I don't want them getting AstraZeneca. And she actually said this in a media conference. She said, I wouldn't want a young person dying from a blood clot because they took this particular vaccine, whereas if they got COVID, they probably wouldn't die. And then that caused a lot of controversy and people accused her of being an anti-vaxxer. And uh, she's been criticised for various things. And I think she's probably been too quick to impose lockdowns in some circumstances. But I think 
it sounds like from what you're saying, I mean, that you'd probably be sympathetic to that view of hers or that that seems to make sense in your view. I'm all for vaccines if they're voluntary. If a person wants to take the vaccine for whatever reason, they should do so and they should be able to do so. They're assuming the risk of the vaccine. Mm. But when it's forced on somebody, that's another story, especially when the people who are benefiting from this vaccination are not the same people who are taking the vaccination. And that's unfair. And uh, it's really, I don't think, has any place in a free society to be forcing people to uh, take medical therapy. We, we don't force people to take any other kind of medical therapy. And so I don't see why we are doing in this in this case. Now, the, the usual argument that's advanced is nonsense. The usual argument is that, well, the unvaccinated are a threat to the vaccinated people. And that's complete nonsense. If the vaccine works, if taking the vaccine protects you from infection, then you get your vaccination and you go about your business and you have nothing to fear from anyone who has not taken the vaccine. The only people who have anything to fear are the people who decline the vaccine. Now, if the vaccine doesn't work, well, then why would you expect anybody to take it? And if you have partial effectiveness, well, then it's a judgment call. Hmm. Is the efficacy of the vaccine worth the risk? And that can only be made by the individual assuming the risk. Yes, yes. Yeah, I see where you're coming from. So in your view, what the president has announced, you would not be supportive of that, the vaccine mandate? I mean, this is comparable to when FDR rounded up all the Japanese Americans and threw them in concentration camps during World War II. This is ridiculous. Several state uh, governors have pledged to fight this, starting with the courts. I don't think Mr. Biden appreciates the intensity of feeling on this issue. For example, he's requiring healthcare workers to get vaccinated or they won't be able to work with Medicare or Medicaid patients. Now, it hasn't become policy yet, but he said he was going to do it. Well, I'm 67. I have not taken the vaccine. I'm not planning on taking the vaccine. I've already made up my mind that if I'm forced to choose between continuing to work in the hospital or take the vaccine, then I will stop working in the hospital. I will find roles that I can perform, use my talents where I'm not encountering people in the healthcare setting. Uh, so I, I interpret sleep studies. I can continue mm. to do that. I may even get involved with uh, free clinics where we take care of indigent people who don't have access to the normal healthcare system. And since that's outside of Medicare and Medicaid, I would still be able to do that, take care of people and get some kind of compensation for it. So there will be avenues. I intend to make a stand on this. I hope it doesn't come to that. But I think Mr. Biden does not appreciate the intensity of feeling on this. And I suspect if they push hard on this, he's going to lose about 20 percent of the nurses in the country and 10 percent of the physicians. And now you will see a collapse of the healthcare system. Yes, yes. I've just seen the news overnight 
like when I woke up this morning here in Australia, and I've seen that there is uh, quite a lot of reaction to it. I mean, I, I'm I'm quite surprised by it. They're thinking that because there's such a benefit to having a high vaccination rate, it does help you achieve that herd immunity. So is that correct that it do, it would help? But they're wrong. The effect is is weak, and that's what I showed okay. in this this recent article. I mean, I showed what the benefit of increasing the vaccination rate by one percentage point was. Mm. And it's extremely low. I, I mean, you can have a debate as to whether it's worth 3,000 vaccinations to save a life. You can have a debate about that, but it's a judgment call. It's not a situation where you're going to have no problems from the vaccine and we're going to save everybody by this vaccination. If we could wave a wand and make everyone vaccinated in the United States tomorrow, then what you would see is in within three months time, we will have an outbreak of a strain resistant to the vaccine. That's all that will happen. You are not going to kill this virus. It's going to sit around. And if everyone is vaccinated, then the only way the virus can spread is is through a mutation that makes the vaccine ineffective. And that's what will happen. It doesn't directly cause the mutation, but when the mutation occurs, that strain has survival advantage and it becomes the dominant strain in a very short period of time. Yeah, okay. That's uh, terrifying to think about because, I mean, we're pinning our hopes on getting to, I think, 80% vaccination rate here in Australia and then hoping that we can open up and that means that but the decision makers are accepting there will be some COVID cases, but the, the hope is that it's very low and it doesn't overwhelm the hospital system. It's probably not going to overwhelm the hospital system in any case, unless you don't have any hospitals. Your mortality rate is like one-tenth of what it is in the United States. Yes, yes. Or less. Unless you have no hospitals, I don't see how you could overwhelm the healthcare system in Australia. But you're going to have some deaths. They're going to happen. And if you get everyone vaccinated, you know, your next winter, our next summer, you're just going to see a new resistance strain. And then they'll be talking about, well, we got to get another vaccine. Yeah, The vaccine, it's it's just going to be a vicious circle that never ends. And these officials, maybe they are genuinely concerned. I'm not so sure. A lot of these officials have financial interests with pharmaceutical companies. Um, this is billions of dollars for Pfizer and AstraZeneca and Moderna. You know, this is like that movie Elysium, you know, where you had the people in the cloud city and you had the rest of the population in desperate poverty because, you know, they're just going to force everybody to take this uh, health care and they'll basically just suck your, you know, your life out by charging you excessive amounts for this therapy. Elysium is it? I'll have to check that movie out. I haven't seen that. Uh, that that sounds yeah, well. The analogy would be in uh, you know the Mad Max movies. Mm. The, the warlords uh, suppress the population by charging for water. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'll have to check that out. Uh, that's a good point about the mutations. Uh, so is this the issue with the flu too? I mean, we have a new vaccine for the flu every year, but then it's of limited effectiveness because right. Well, yeah. Yeah. Okay. The flu, prior to COVID, uh, the five previous years for the flu in the United States, the vaccine effectiveness was never more than 20%, five years in a row. 
And yet there's this hysteria over flu vaccination at conferences. I've asked, well, you know, if this strategy is so great, why do we get more hysterical about it every year? You would think we would have at least made a dent in the problem. And we, mm. we don't. The flu keeps coming back. It's going to keep coming back. You're not going to get rid of it. And we've been trying for 100 years. Yeah. Good point. Okay. I just want to go back to one thing. This uh, correlation analysis you did, I'll have to have a look at that. You mentioned that Compared with vaccinations, other factors were more important. Are those things like density of the population, the ethnic composition or the amount of obesity in the population? Are they the factors you're talking about? Yes. Uh, So obviously, denser populations would be at higher risk. It's not the only factor. Older populations will be at higher risk. Obese populations will be at higher risk. Populations that have a high prevalence of heart disease will be at higher risk. So yeah, those are the the other factors that are determining uh, results. Okay. Okay. Finally, Gilbert, if you've got time, uh, you've written a paper on vaping and this was published in Quadrant in Australia, a magazine. I know you've written something in, in another journal as well. Right. It was about why the regulations on vaping will not work and the harmful side effects. Okay, so in Australia, I think to vape, so to smoke the e-cigarettes, you need a prescription from a doctor, if I remember correctly. So what's your argument in that, uh, that article, in, in that work you've done, Gilbert? Could, could you take us through that, please? When any regulation makes it harder to get something. Now, if the extra effort or extra cost required is small compared to the desirability of the product, people will just put up with it. But if you make the extra cost too high, then you'll get a black market and you will get other people supplying the product without the restrictions. The problem is in a black market, everybody supplying the product are criminals. <laughs> yes. And the criminals, I mean, if you watch the, the ser- TV series Breaking Bad, yes, you know, yes. you're dealing with the Jessies. who are going to blow snot into the product, you know, or put the chili peppers into the product. That's their idea of a joke. We saw in the United States, the big problem with E-Valley, the electronic vaping associated lung injury, which was the big thing before COVID hit, it's caused by an additive, vitamin E acetate. And the normal manufacturers weren't the ones using this additive. It was the black market people because they were finding a cheap way to cut the product, just like heroin suppliers cut their product with talc. So it's the same concept. So it was the black market supply that was introducing this harmful chemical that was causing all these cases. So in, in this example, the regulation directly was responsible for this outbreak of uh, vaping-associated lung injury. Uh, it was a terrible tragedy, but that's just one example. So the other forms of getting around the regulations are counterfeit prescriptions. Mm. That's one way of getting around it. The other thing is you have unscrupulous doctors, you have unscrupulous pharmacists who find ways to arbitrage the difference uh, you see, the, the regulation creates two groups of people, two new groups of people, 
you have people who can get a prescription legally, but don't really want to vape. And you have other people who can't get the prescription legally, but they want to vape. And so the people who don't need the prescription, but can get it, will sell it to the people who can't get the prescription, but want it. And so, and that price differential can be very high in a black market. And so in the United States, so what we see with uh, narcotics, uh, Mm. for example, the the opiate uh, problem, you get this, you'll get the similar kinds of things with, with the vaping. So in the narcotics problem in the United States, you have pharmacists who will, They'll basically purchase a prescription from somebody who can get it that doesn't really want the pills. They'll pay money for the script. Then they will submit the script, get it filled, and they will sell the pills on the black market at a very large profit. You have other scams where people just recruit patients on Medicare and Medicaid, and they just say, go say you're having pain and get a script for, you know, pain medication, and then we'll pay you for the prescription. You have physicians who will just write a prescription for any amount of pain medicine for uh, any reason. They don't even see you. They just charge you for the prescription. So it's a prescription mill. And you see all these things, and it's a multi-billion dollar problem in the United States. And the same thing will happen in Australia with with the vaping. Uh, Now, whether it will be the same degree depends on how hard it is to get the vaping prescriptions legally. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, your article is a, another illustration. It's a good illustration of the unintended consequences of regulation, the adverse economic and social consequences. So I think that's, uh, that's a fair point. And is it the case that vaping could be a, a gateway drug to cigarette smoking? That's one of the concerns that's, that's raised and that that's why we need strong regulations against vaping. Do you have any thoughts on that? It appears, at least the data appears to go the other way. I mean, uh, vaping is a tool to get people to quit quit smoking. So in practice, that's what happens, not the other way around. Yes. But there are ways to deal with the problems of people smoking and, and, you know, education is one, particularly educating people that the problems with cigarettes is not the nicotine. The problem with cigarettes are the combustion products that are carcinogenic, inflammatory, and that's what causes the disease. Everybody has made nicotine into a bogeyman and it doesn't deserve it. The other thing is it would be helpful if we really understood why people like nicotine. Why do people do this? Now, I don't do it, uh, so I don't really understand it. But we should really be spending more time finding out why people insist on doing this habit. They do it because they like it. Does nicotine play a role? Yeah. Yes, it does. But it is not the only thing. And, and here's how I know it is not the only thing. So we have patients in the hospital, they have a heart attack, say. And they're in the hospital for a couple of weeks to to deal with their heart attack. Now, they're not smoking while they're in the hospital. By the time they leave the hospital, there is no nicotine withdrawal. That is not a problem. Yet, what is the first thing they do when they get home is they they light up a Mm -hmm. cigarette. There is something else going on behaviorally that makes this something that people want to do. It relaxes them somehow. It gives them some kind of gratification that needs to find another outlet. And you don't solve that problem by banning it. 
Yeah, that's a fair point about the fact that the nicotine would be out of their system, but yet they do then go and, uh, yeah, they want that hit, and uh, even though they're not, it is out of their system. I guess it's similar to, I mean, there are other things that are addictive and that uh, are pleasurable, such as uh, alcohol that we that we don't. Right. Well, nar- narcotics is a perfect example. For many years, you know, we knew that narcotics had had problems, mm. and we knew about these opiate receptors. And so we knew what was going on, you know, with neurochemistry and stuff when people used opiates. But we wondered, why were these receptors there? They didn't seem to serve any purpose. So why did we have these receptors? And then endorphins were discovered. And we found out that the receptors were were there for the endorphins. Okay, so there was a reason that people liked opiates. And Basically, to, to combat opiates, you've got to find ways to allow people to produce endorphins naturally so they can get what they're craving without taking the drugs. That means tackling things like depression. It means, yeah. you know, people have a lot of problems. Um, I mean, suicide is the worst, worst form. Somebody that is so overwhelmed with the choices facing them that they kill themselves. So that's obviously an extreme problem. And people are using these drugs to escape this torment mm. they have over the next choice they have to make. We have to find a way to solve that problem rather than just banning things that we don't like. Absolutely. And I should mention before we, we wrap up that like suicide, that's one of the things that we're starting to be concerned about with these prolonged lockdowns and particularly among younger people. And I haven't seen the, the data in Australia or I don't think we're, we're able to identify any, any increase, but we're hearing about increased calls to mental health hotlines and we're hearing about there are specific cases of people who have lost hope and they're being reported in the media. So, yep, it could be a, that could be a real problem, this mental health these mental health problems coming out of this pandemic. Uh, so It's a big problem in the United States. We already had a problem with suicides and opiate overdoses prior to COVID, but since the lockdowns, it escalated and there was a big increase in drug overdoses and suicides by other means. And that's one of the harmful effects of these lockdowns. When you deprive people of their ability to earn a livelihood, you know, that's possibly the number one cause of severe depression. Uh, loss of a loved one is the only other thing that comes close. Yeah, very good point. Dr. Gilbert Verdine, I've really appreciated that. That's been great. Uh, lots of lots of interesting information and things I learned about, uh, particularly about immunity, how our immune system works. That was helpful. And also these, yeah, lots of fascinating perspectives and things I'm going to have to look more closely at. Uh, but yeah, really appreciate you coming onto the program. Is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion or you happy to wrap up? Thank you for having me. And yes, the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. There are unintended consequences of all of these regulations, mandates, and we generally end up regretting them. Absolutely. Okay, Dr. Gilbert Burdine, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Okay, that's the end of this episode of Economics Explored. I hope you enjoyed it. If so, please tell your family and friends and leave a comment or give us a rating on your podcast app. 
If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, you can feel free to send them to contact at economicsexplored.com and we'll aim to address them in a future episode. Thanks for listening. Until next week, goodbye.